0: to see. But there's one place that nearly every visitor goes to. In fact, it's so popular that they've built a restaurant and an inn there to accommodate the crowds. And what is it that draws all those people to that one spot? Well, it's a geyser. It's not the biggest geyser in Yellowstone, but it's the one you can count on. Every 65 minutes, It shoots a stream of boiling water 170 feet into the air. And it has earned its nickname, Old Faithful. And if you're a Christian, that's a characteristic that ought to mark your life. People ought to be nicknaming you Old Faithful. You ought to be someone that people can count on, like clockwork. You see, that's the seventh characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Verses 22 and 23. Now, what is faithfulness? Let me give you a simple definition of faithfulness. Faithfulness is consistently doing your duty until your duty is done. Faithfulness is consistently doing your duty until your duty is done. To be faithful, you don't have to have a whole lot of resources. To be faithful, you don't have to have a whole lot of ability. In fact, when Jesus gave the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, He said the Master gave to one servant five talents, to another servant two talents, to another servant one talent. And when He returned, here's what He said to the servant with five talents, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And here's what He said to the one with two talents, Well done, thou good and faithful. Faithful servant. You see, they had different abilities and they had different resources, but they were equally faithful. Because faithfulness is not a measure of ability. It's a measure of dependability. And as we've said, with all the other characteristics in the fruit of the Spirit, if you want to see an example of faithfulness, just look at God. It doesn't matter where you're at today. God is faithful. Are you an unbeliever still waiting to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus? 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Are you a Christian here this morning and you're struggling and saying, I don't know if I can make it to the finish line? Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithful is He who calls you, and He will bring it to pass. Are you suffering this morning? 1 Peter 4.19 says, Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator. Are you battling with temptation this morning and saying, I don't know if I can handle it? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Have you fallen into sin? First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whether you need salvation or strength in your Christian walk or comfort in suffering or victory over temptation or forgiveness, God is faithful. In fact, He's so faithful that that's one of the names given to the Lord Jesus. Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. He is consistently doing His duty until His duty is done. And since most of His promises to us are eternal, His duty will never be done. No wonder we hear Jeremiah saying this in Lamentations 3.22, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. God is faithful and He wants to develop that same characteristic as fruit in your life. So let me ask you this morning, are you faithful? Are you dependable? Are you consistently doing your duty until your duty is done? And to help you answer that, let me just point out six areas where you are called to be faithful. Number one, is your work. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. In your work, you're to be faithful. That means you work hard whether the boss is there or not. That means you show up on time. That means you give an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. The most spiritual thing you can do at work is work. That's faithfulness. And that applies as well to the work that God has called us to do. We are all servants of God. In fact, the Bible calls us stewards. A steward is not someone who owns something. A steward is someone who manages something for his master. Our job is to take care of what God has entrusted us with. And 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, It is required of stewards that one be found faithful. God has entrusted you with physical blessings. God has entrusted you with spiritual blessings. God has entrusted you with a spiritual gift. Are you using those faithfully? Some of you used to teach a Sunday school class, but you don't do it anymore. Some of you used to volunteer when we have a choir, but you don't do it anymore. Some of you used to volunteer to do things behind the scenes, but you don't do it anymore. What gift do you have that you're not using? You know, when the Master came back in Matthew 25, do you remember what happened to the servant who buried his talent in the ground? The Master took it away. And there's an important principle in that In God's economy, you either use it or you lose it. Are you faithful in your work? Second area you're called to be faithful in is in your wealth. Jesus was talking about money in Luke 16 when He gave us this principle in verse 10. He said, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. If you're going to be faithful... With a lot, you're going to have to start by being faithful with a little. The little guy came up to a guy who was about six, eight, 300 pounds. He said, If I was as big as you, you know what I'd do? He said, What? He said, If I was as big as you, I'd go out in the woods and I'd find the biggest bear I could find and I'd wrestle that bear right to the ground. And the big man looked at the little man and he said, You know what? There are a lot of little bears in the woods. You say, if I just had a million dollars, here's what I'd do for the church. Listen to me carefully. Whatever you are doing with a hundred dollars is exactly what you will do if you have a million dollars. Because faithfulness begins with little things. Things. Are you faithful with your wealth? Jesus said, if you're not faithful with a little, you're not going to be faithful with much. I came up to my wife this week and I said, Honey, be honest with me. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Did you marry me for my looks? And she said, No. And I said, Well, why, why did you marry me then? She said, I married you for your brains. It's the little things that count. (laughs) Third area you're to be faithful in is your worship. Hebrews 10.25 says, We are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. God has called us to be faithful in worshiping together. Now let me ask you this. What standard of faithfulness do you require? If your car starts one out of three times, is that okay? If your newspaper arrives every other day, is that alright with you? If your refrigerator stops working for a day or two, now and then... Do you say, oh, well, it works most of the time? If you miss a couple loan payments, does the bank say, that's all right, 10 out of 12 ain't bad? What do you think God considers a faithful Christian? If you fail to worship two out of four weeks, you think God considers that faithful? You know, if we just had everybody who came every other Sunday come every Sunday, we'd be overflowing this room. Are you faithful in your worship? Fourth area you're to be faithful in is your word Proverbs 12, says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. God delights in those who speak faithfully. Your word should be your bond. As someone has said, the weakest handshake ought to be better than the strongest ink on a contract. When you give your word, keep it. You know, think about it. Your word is the only thing that is not worth giving unless you keep it. Are you faithful in your word? Fifth area you're to be faithful in is your witness In Revelation 1.5, Jesus is called the faithful witness. And He has called each of us to be faithful witnesses as well. Paul could openly say in Acts 20.26, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because He was a faithful witness. When He got the opportunity, He took it. And then the sixth area you're to be faithful in is your wedding vows. And I want to emphasize this this morning. In fact, I'm going to repeat some things that I said in a message about two years ago, a message entitled How to Affair Proof Your Marriage. But I'm not going to apologize for repeating myself this morning because I don't think I can repeat myself enough when it comes to this issue. Because I'm losing too many friends. And, and the battlefield is too treacherous. We live in a culture that mocks the idea of sexual faithfulness. Either to God prior to marriage or to your spouse in marriage. It's viewed today as an archaic and unrealistic expectation. Expectation but despite what the current consensus may be, God has called you to be faithful. So this morning, let me remind you of five ways to be faithful to your spouse. Number one, magnify the covenant. When you were married, you entered into a covenant relationship with your spouse, and we need to magnify that. When God established the guidelines for the very first marriage, here's what He said in Genesis 2.24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now I want you to notice three things about marriage. Number one is the priority of marriage. You are to leave your father and mother to enter into marriage. Marriage has the highest priority of any human relationship. In fact, in terms of relationships, it's, it takes priority over your parents, it takes priority over your children. Your spouse is to be your highest priority. Secondly, the permanence of marriage. You are to leave father and mother and you are to cleave. That word means to stick with like glue. Marriage is not a commitment you make until someone else better comes along. Marriage is a commitment that you make till death do us part. If you're married, married, you have entered into a covenant to be faithful. And marriage far exceeds any other human covenant because it's not just you two sticking yourselves together. God has stuck you together. Jesus said in Mark ten nine, what therefore God has joined together Let no man separate. You say, but we're not compatible. No two people are compatible. You say, but we've got problems. Every marriage has problems. You can't take two sinful people and stick them together without problems. But in the midst of those problems, you are to be coming together rather than coming apart. And then third, the purpose of marriage They shall become one flesh. Marriage is the most intimate of all human bonds. In fact, you become so close, the Bible says you are one. You are one physically, you are one emotionally, you are one spiritually. Someone said marriage is a romance novel, and in the first chapter, both the hero and the heroine die, and they become one new person and the sexual union is the expression of that oneness. That's why the Bible refers to sexual relations with the term knowing. Genesis 4.1 says, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Sexual intercourse is the expression of that deepest form of unity and oneness and lifelong commitment. So if you are going to be faithful You need to magnify the covenant you have made in marriage and understand that sexual intimacy is the expression of your oneness. Second way you're to be faithful to your spouse is to measure the consequences. Now, God is not prudish, God is not a cosmic killjoy. God thought up sex, it's His idea. And He wants us to enjoy it. In fact, He put Adam and Eve in the garden naked. In Genesis chapter 1, and he said, It's very good, but outside the context of marriage, it's very bad because it brings dire consequences. That's why in the Ten Commandments, God said, You shall not commit adultery. That commandment is not given to bring you pain, it is given to bring you protection. It's like a little sign on the interstate at the bottom of the exit ramp that says, Do not enter. You don't resent that sign. You respect that sign because it's there to protect you. God has given this commandment to protect us. In fact, there's no sin as destructive and as damaging as sexual sin. Just think about the consequences. Number one, it's a sin against God. It's breaking His commandment. And if you look at the Scriptures, you'll find that the most common commandment in the Old Testament, second only to idolatry, is you shall not commit adultery. And when you come to the New Testament, you will find it's the most common commandment given in the New Testament. God is saying throughout the Scriptures, don't do it. And when you do, it's a sin against God. David found that out too late. In Psalm 51.4, when he prayed, Against Thee and Thee only have I sinned. Secondly, it's a sin against your own self. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Sexual intercourse is uniquely designed by God to express the physical and spiritual unity of a husband and a wife. So when you get involved sexually with someone else, it's not just skin deep. You are, in some sense, giving a part of yourself away. And that's a part you will never get back. There is no sin in all of Scripture that will cause you more personal damage physically, psychologically, spiritually than immorality. Proverbs 6:32 says, but a man who commits adultery lacks judgment, whoever does so destroys himself. People today are promoting safe sex. There is no such thing as safe sex outside of marriage. We need to be promoting sacred sex. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. You cannot make adultery safe. It's a sin against yourself. It's like Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of Quaker oats. For a moment of pleasure, he threw away the promises of God third consequence, it's a sin against your home. Robertson McQuilkin in his book Biblical Ethics put it this way, infidelity tells a child, your mother is not worth much, and your father is a liar and a cheat. Furthermore, honor is not nearly as important as pleasure. In fact, my child, my own satisfaction is more important than you. This is a sin that destroys your home. It is a total betrayal of your spouse and it brings irreparable damage to your children. Fourth consequence. It's a sin against your church. 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. You say, well, my personal sex life is none of your business. Yes, it is. Because we are members of the same body. And then there's a fifth consequence. And that is it's a sin against your world. You are a testimony to the world around you. And what does it say to the world if the gospel doesn't give you the power to control your own sexuality? If you are flirting with adultery, I want you to measure the consequences. It's a sin against God, it's a sin against yourself, it's a sin against your home, it's a sin against your church, it's a sin against your world. Now let me add a, a footnote here. Jesus said in Matthew five twenty eight, Everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already in his heart. Now, just because Jesus said we can commit adultery in our heart, don't jump to the conclusion that there's no difference between physical adultery and mental adultery. Don't start reasoning, well, I've already thought it, I might as well do it. Because yes, both are sins in God's eyes, but physical adultery carries far greater consequences It breaks the marriage covenant. It provides grounds for divorce. It violates and defiles another person's body. Adultery of the heart doesn't carry those same consequences. But having said that, let me say this. When you don't address adultery in your heart, you are just one opportunity away from the act of adultery. James put it into an equation in James 1.15. He said, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Interesting that James puts it in the analogy of birth, a sexual kind of analogy. He says, When you're harboring lust in your heart, you are impregnating yourself, and you will give birth to sinful acts that will lead to death. Paul Harvey told this story about the way an Eskimo hunts down a wolf. He said, first the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. A blood popsicle with the knife as the stick. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh blood. He begins to lick faster and more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade On his own tongue, nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. Lust operates that same way. And if you're going to be faithful to your spouse, you better measure the consequences third way to be faithful to your spouse is maintain the closeness. The closer you are as husband and wife, the less likely it is for you to stray. So you need to get closer to your spouse. The problem is, like the popular book says, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. If you ever find a guy who says, I understand women... Don't trust him because he'll lie about other things. (laughs) See, if you're married, you don't have to understand all women. You just have to understand one woman. 1 Peter 3.7 says, You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way. You're to understand her and get closer to her. A farmer walked into an attorney's office. The attorney asked, May I help you? And the farmer says, Yeah, I want to get one of those divorces. The attorney said, well, do you have any grounds? And the farmer said, yeah, I got about 140 acres. The attorney said, no, you don't understand. Do you have a case? He said, no, I don't have a case. I have a John Deere. The attorney said, no, I mean, do you have a grudge? And the farmer said, yeah, I got a grudge. That's where I park my John Deere. The attorney said, no, sir, I mean, do you have a suit? And the farmer said, yes, sir, I got a suit. I wear it to church on Sundays. Well, the exasperated attorney said, well, sir, does your wife beat you up or anything? And he said, no, sir, we both get up about four <laughs> 30. Finally, the attorney says, okay, let me put it this way. Why do you want a divorce? And the farmer said, that's simple. I can never have a meaningful conversation with her. Well, that guy had his own set of problems. But you've got to understand your wife. Let me recommend a book to you. There's a book in our library by Willard Harley entitled, His Needs, Her Needs. In it, he lists the five top needs of men and the top five needs of women. What's interesting is, on top of the man's list is sexual fulfillment. You know what? It's not even on the woman's list. (laughs) Top thing on the woman's list is affection and communication. See, the husband says, I'm trying to fulfill my duty to my wife, but she won't let me. Well, that problem is you're trying to fulfill something she doesn't need. See, if you want to understand your wife and meet her needs, you need to see that what she needs starts in the morning, not in the evening. What she needs starts in the kitchen, not in the bedroom. What she needs starts with her emotions and not her body. When you start to understand her and meet her needs, that means you're going to talk to her more, you're going to listen to her more, you're going to compliment her more, you're going to date her more, you're going to embrace her more as a simple display of affection. She's not just going to get your undivided attention at 10 p.m. when you want to be intimate. Husbands, you've got to become a student of your wife's needs so that you can meet them. You know what's interesting? When you start meeting your wife's needs, She's going to meet your needs. And in that process, you're going to get to know each other better and you're going to become closer in your oneness. And when you maintain that closeness, you are building faithfulness. Alan Alda's wife put it this way, it's real easy to leave your spouse. It's not so easy to leave your best friend. Fourth way to be faithful to your spouse is to minimize the chances There are things you need to do to minimize the chances of this happening. Number one is flee. This is the primary way Scripture gives us to deal with this temptation. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee from youthful lusts. Don't put yourself in circumstances that tempt you. And if you have to be in those circumstances, be like Daniel, who when he arrived in Babylon in Daniel chapter 1, purposed in his heart, to be faithful to God. When you have to go on business travel, set up standards and minimize the opportunities. You get to the motel, go to the front desk say, I want to unplug the movies in my room. Put a big picture of your wife and children on top of the television set. Call home every night. For many men, the problem today is the internet. Some of you need to take your computer out of a private room and put it out in a public place. Or some of you need to get it completely out of your home if you can't deal with it. You say, well, that's pretty extreme. Well, let me tell you something. I would rather go overboard than be thrown overboard. Secondly, choose friends carefully. Your friends will either be an encouragement to you in this area or a detriment I don't know how many times I had someone tell me, Well, the guys at work say I ought to ditch my wife. And my response is, What are you doing taking advice from the guys at work? See, if you don't have friends who model faithfulness, if you don't have friends who challenge you to remain faithful, if you don't have friends who will confront you if you're not faithful, then you need to get a new set of friends. And then, thirdly, guard your mind. There's no such thing as a one-night stand. It's always a process. It's always a series of events. And it begins when you do not guard your mind. What do you read? What do you watch? What do you think about? What do you listen to? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We're to be taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This battle is won or lost in your mind. Job understood that, and that's why in Job 31.1 he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And you need to take it seriously as well and minimize the chances of unfaithfulness. And then let me give you a fifth way to be faithful to your spouse. Make a commitment. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.7 to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Four quick areas you need to discipline yourself in. Number one, you need to seek God. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I'm not just to flee from immorality because of the negative consequences. There's also a positive consequence. When I pursue God, I'm pursuing Him with those who call on Him from a pure heart. You see, sexual sins and impure thoughts are impediments to my intimacy with God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Your purity enhances your vision of God. And your impurity clouds your vision of God. The best thing you can do to overcome sexual sin is seek God. God. With all your heart. Second area, develop a divine awareness. You know, as Christians, we often spend much of our lives ignorant of God's presence. We're a lot like Jacob in Genesis 28 16, who awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Well, if you're not aware of the Lord's presence, you're going to have a difficult time with temptation. We need to be like Joseph who, when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39.9, said, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Third area you need to discipline yourself in is you need to memorize Scripture. Jesus set the example for us when He rebuffed the devil in Matthew chapter 4 by quoting Old Testament Scriptures. Now, if Jesus needed to memorize Scripture, how much more do we? psalm writer understood that. In Psalm 119.11, he said, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And then a fourth area. Establish accountability. Give someone permission to hold you accountable to these commitments. Someone who will sit down with you and ask you tough questions. Someone who will make you toe the line and keep your soul faithful to God. More than 200 years ago, this nation saw fit to establish a branch of the armed forces known as the Marines. The Marines came up with a two word motto. Any Marines in here today? What's that motto? Semper fidelis. It's a Latin phrase that means always faithful. A Marine says, I'm not just faithful when it's convenient. I'm not just faithful when it doesn't cost me anything. I'm not just faithful when it's popular. I'm not just faithful when I feel like it. A marine says, I am always faithful. Well, let me tell you something. God this morning is looking for a few good men. God is looking for marines. God is looking for people who say, when it comes to my work, when it comes to my wealth, when it comes to my worship, when it comes to my word, when it comes to my witness, when it comes to my wedding vows, I am always faithful. The greatest ability is dependability. And it will be to the faithful servant that Jesus says, well done.